Have you ever not known what to do? You see a fight on the street and you don't know whether to do something. Do you call the police? Do you intervene? Next week, our diocese has a bishop election synod with two candidates. Who do we vote for? You find yourself in a situation that's a bit lose-lose and it involves people you're close with. How do you choose the best option? Is there a way that keeps everyone happy? Maybe there's there's different types of questions that you're asking. Should I go and look and find a new job? How do I handle my overbearing family member? What bike should I buy? How can I handle the stress and anxiety I'm feeling? So many things to weigh up. Wouldn't it be good to have wisdom so that we know the right decision, to know the right paths? How many problems and situations would be resolved if we only had the wisdom to know the best decision in the first place? And so we seek wisdom. Maybe we look to other people's wisdom. In The Wizard of Oz, uh, Dorothy, the Tin Man, the Lion and the Scarecrow, they, they travel a great distance on the yellow brick road to seek the great wisdom of the great Wizard of Oz. We might not uh, be following a yellow path, but we may be seeking wisdom at the end of a path. Maybe we we search it for it in our our favorite authors or speakers or comedians often want to impart their wisdom to us. Maybe we look to them or we go to that treasure trove of wisdom that we call Google. We type in our questions and never really get the answers that we're looking for. Well, the teacher of Ecclesiastes, he's wise. He's wiser than all who have gone before him, we learn in chapter 1. And over this series in Ecclesiastes, we've seen the teacher apply his great wisdom and understanding to try and find meaning. Meaning in life. Meaning in work. Meaning in pleasure. Meaning in money. Well, today we're asking, is there meaning in having wisdom? Will having wisdom really help us in this world? Will wisdom bring our lives meaning? Or like many of the conclusions that the author of Ecclesiastes comes to, will wisdom be found meaningless? So let's jump into Ecclesiastes chapter 7 and ask, is there meaning in wisdom? The teacher starts with a broad reflection on life. Verse 1, a good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. Now, he says there's, there's wisdom and benefit in having a good name. And I'm sure we can agree with that. But when he says the day of death is better than the day of birth, well, maybe we don't agree with that. We are more likely to, to fear death, to be uncomfortable with death. Our Western culture hides death away in hospitals, in nursing homes. Our society celebrates youthfulness, not old age, because we know that the older you are, the closer you are to death. So why does the teacher think that the day of death is better than the day of birth? Well, it's because on the day that you're born, you're born into life under the sun, you're born into this world, you're born into a frustrated world, a world of sin, 
A world where life doesn't seem fair. A life where you work and then you die and you can't take your work with you. But when you die, you exit this frustrated world. You, you leave it behind. Like when you check out of a hotel, you leave that hotel behind. When you die, you're leaving this life under the sun behind. The reason that the teacher says the day of death is better is because death reminds us of the way that things really are. That's why in verse 2, it's better to go to the house of mourning than feasting. Or verse 4, the heart of the wise is in the house of mourning. Death gives perspective to our life and reminds us that without eternity, without God, life, as the teacher says, is meaningless. And when we know this reality, that will in turn help us to look to God and to his wisdom. That is wise. What is not wise but foolish is to deny this reality and live as if death is not coming. Verse 4, the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. Or verse 5, it's foolish to hear the songs of fools and not listen to the rebuke of the wise. Now, the teacher is not saying there we can't enjoy ourselves. He, he says multiple times throughout the book, in fact, we should enjoy ourselves. We should enjoy the lot that God has given us. What he's doing is he's pointing out that ignoring the reality of death and re- ignoring the reality of the sadness and the frustration in our world and in, in instead investing in things to just make us feel good in the moment that make us forget is foolish. I like a person who just doesn't want to think about life, so they, they watch a lot of TV to escape so they don't have to think about it. Or a teenager who doesn't want to spend time with their family and just invest their whole life in video games. Uh, today, people are devoting themselves to all sorts of uh, worldly things that take their minds off thinking about God and the reality of sin and death, seeking pleasure, seeking to enjoy life. Buy a boat, go out every weekend, catch lots of fish. Well, if you talk to most fishermen, don't catch lots of fish. <laughs> Enjoy the moment, but forget eternity. And that's the issue. The issue is a lack of perspective. It's, it's fine to go fishing. It's fine to play video games and watch TV and whatever else you want to do to wind down. But the issue is forgetting eternity. Forgetting that life is just a breath and then it's gone. The world that we're living is frustrated. When I'm reading a good book, I can be sitting in the lounge room, everyone can be home and the TV can be on, and I'll just zone out. Uh, So Beck or one of the kids can talk to me, they can say my name quite loudly, and it just doesn't register. I I just don't hear it. They have to get my attention and then say what they wanted to say again so that I can hear that. I have to zone back into the world. We can do that with life. Sometimes we can just check out of life, ignore the big questions and just live in the moment. But if that's us, we need to check back in. We need to get back in the zone. See, we can trick ourselves into thinking that this life is all that there is, but it's a deception. Uh, You've probably heard the quote, uh, you're born, you live, you die. I like Billy Graham's version. He says, you're born, you suffer, you die, but fortunately there's a loophole. There is more to come. And if we're living as if there isn't, 
a God and if there isn't a heaven and a hell, we're selling ourselves short and it's a foolish way to live. And so the teacher concludes it's better to be wise. Wisdom is good. Verse 11, wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. The wise are better off than the foolish because they are better able to consider death and eternity and in turn will help them make sense of the world and find the meaning that the teacher is after. However, for the teacher, wisdom is still meaningless. We've heard the teacher say this before in chapter 1, where he perceives that both wisdom and foolishness is a chasing after the wind. Uh, The reason he gives here in chapter 7 for wisdom being meaningless is found in verse 13. Consider the work of God, who can make straight what he has made crooked. See, neither wisdom nor foolishness can change the way that God has made the world. I think of it another way. Think about our weather system here in the Kimberley. We have the wet season, we have the dry season. It rains a whole lot in the wet season. It doesn't rain very much in the dry season, if at all. We can't change that. It doesn't matter if we're wise. It doesn't matter if we're foolish. That is outside of our control. Who can make straight what God has made crooked? God is the one in control. God is the one who appoints our times and our seasons, and he is in control of our very lives. Another example that the teacher gives of God's control is in verse 14. In the day of prosperity, be joyful. In the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. You see what it's saying? It's saying that God is in control. God is the one who gives us days of joy. God is the one who gives us days of adversity. Nothing happens outside of God's hand. Now, God being in control is not just God being in charge. Our prime minister is in charge of our government, but he cannot control everything that the government does or doesn't do. God, though, is in control. Everything that happens or doesn't happen is within his power. God is not just up there waiting to see what we do and then coming up with a plan in response to our decisions. I'm reading a sci-fi series at the moment where there is a very smart, powerful, artificial intelligence called Skippy. I've got an artist impression here. That's what Skippy looks like. And through the book, Skippy is learning about human behavior. And he is adapting his intelligence and his decisions accordingly. However, God is not like that. God doesn't need to adapt to us. The truth is that God is in control, directing this world and directing us. God gives us responsibility. He gives us free will. Our decisions are still our decisions. Our choices, with all their consequences, are still our choices. How can God be in control and determine everything when we have human agency, human free will? Well, That's one of the great mysteries of God, isn't it? But what is clear from the Bible, though, is that is exactly what he does. I'll give one example. Uh, In Jesus' death, when Jesus died, it wasn't an accident. And God thought, oh no, Jesus has died. What am I going to do? Oh, I've got this great plan. He can die for the sins of the world. 
No, that's not how it happened. It was in Acts chapter 2, verse 23, it says, This man, Jesus, was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. You see, in that verse, God's control. It's God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. It was no accident. But you also see human responsibility with the help of wicked men who put him to death. God's control, human responsibility, both working at the same time. Now, how does this all relate to the the meaningless of wisdom? Well, we can't change God's plans. As it says in verse 14, we are limited in knowing God's plans. And it is our limited understanding of God's eternal plan that makes wisdom meaningless. And in fact, the problems are even greater than that. Not only are we limited, but God's wisdom is beyond our reach. In verse 23, God's wisdom cannot be found. It's a hidden treasure that no one can find. Uh, In the book of Job, there's this great chapter that talks about trying to find wisdom, chapter 28. Uh, It's worth reading. Uh, But he he talks in this chapter about how you, you can't dig for wisdom to find it. You can't mine it out of the mountains. You can't travel to the bottom of the ocean and find God's wisdom. It's elusive. You can't get your hands on it. But the thing is, this wisdom is worth more than all of the precious metals in the world. It's hidden, but it's valuable. We should want it. But we can't get our hands on it. And the teacher knows this. He knows we can't understand God's plans. And one example of us not understanding God's plans is why does a good God allow suffering? The teacher notices this too in verse 15. In my vain life I've seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. It's a big question. It's an emotional question because we've all suffered to some extent or another. And the short answer of why there is evil and suffering in the world is because humanity chose to rebel against God. We rejected God and his wisdom. We decided instead to live according to our wisdom. And we still do. We look around and we see a world full of suffering. We see oppression, we see murder, we see wars. But even as we think about ourselves, there's there's evil inside us as well. There's, There's anger, deceit, lies, hatred. Why doesn't God just put an end to it? Why doesn't he do it now? And we'd be left with that big question, except that God has revealed to us his wisdom. And it comes back to Jesus. God has done something about the evil and suffering in our world. When Jesus died on the cross, it was God's plan. And so let's turn to look at the wisdom of God. And we need to know that God turns wisdom on its head. See, God's wisdom is not like our wisdom. God's wisdom spans all eternity and is limitless. Back when mobile phone plans first came out, you remember they had 
dollar amounts attached to them. You could buy like a $50 plan or a $60 plan and you could only make calls up until that certain amount. You hit that cutoff, they charged you exorbitant amount of money. There was a cap. It was limited. But if you buy a phone plan now, most phone plans come unlimited talk and text. You can uh, talk to whoever you want, wherever you want, for your heart's content for an unlimited amount of time. Well, that is God's wisdom. It is limitless. It has no caps, no fine print. Whereas we're limited, God is not. And when we think about God's wisdom, which he has revealed to us in the scriptures, at first it makes no sense to us. His his wisdom is so different from ours. We can't find it, but he reveals it. And what he's revealed in his word is his big plan for us. God had a plan from the very beginning of time, before creation, to send his son to die for our sin, to rise from the dead, to redeem his church so that his church can be with him for all eternity. And all of history has been and will continue to work towards that goal. The end of the world is not up to chance. God has chosen when it will happen. God has chosen how it will happen. He tells us it's going to happen when Jesus returns. And so if we turn to 1 Corinthians, we see more of God's wisdom. We read in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 27, God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And the foolish things that verse 27 is referring to is talking about the cross. It's talking about Jesus who died on the cross. And so in verse 30, it says that Jesus has become for us the wisdom of God. If we want to tap into the limitless wisdom of God, if we want to understand the ways of the world, if we want to make sense of death and eternity, we need to look to the one who is God's wisdom revealed to us, Jesus. See, Jesus' death and resurrection are climactic moments in God's plan. Our world doesn't want to acknowledge this because the idea that God's plan for the world could centre on Jesus A man born 2,000 years ago in the Middle East? It sounds foolish, doesn't it? Laughable. That that man would then die on a cross, the most shameful of punishments that were available at the time? But this is God's wisdom. Without God's revelation of things beyond this world, we would never be aware of eternity we would not be aware of the problem of our broken relationship with God, nor the problem of our sinfulness. And it's that broken relationship that Jesus comes to restore. See, at the heart of God's limitless wisdom is the reality that to be restored into relationship with God, we need to have our sin, the evil in us, to be forgiven. And that could only happen by God himself paying for it and a perfect human dying in our place. And so Jesus comes along, God in the flesh, fully God, fully human, dying on the cross for our sin. He turns our wisdom on its head. Another way that God turns our wisdom on its head through the cross is that he shows us that our salvation, our restored relationship with God, is not based on anything that we have done. 
the teacher in Ecclesiastes in verse 16 says, Be not overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? And the reason he says that is because of this, this sin, this evil that is in us. See, it is outside of our ability to become righteous before God. It's outside of our ability to restore that relationship with God because we live in a frustrated world. And the good things we do, our righteousness does not earn us favour with God. The good things that you do don't make up for the fact that you have rejected God. And if we're trying to earn God's eternal favour, thinking that our eternal destiny is based only on the good things that we have done, we are in a very, very dangerous place. Uh, Yesterday, at the church, we had the garage sale and uh, our little store made $50. Now, if I took that $50 and went to the real estate agent and said, we just sold some stuff so that we can buy a house. I'd like to buy a house, please, and here's my payment. That real estate agent's going to laugh me out of town because that's just ridiculous. You can't buy a house with 50 bucks. Well, if we're coming before God saying, Look at me, God, I'm pretty good. It's just like us coming before him with a $50 note saying, I'm trying to buy a house. Our good works, they don't earn us anything with God. They can't earn us anything with God. Your church attendance, your baptism, your confirmation, your giving, your acts of kindness, like when you helped old Edna across the street, your good parenting, your social action, doesn't pay for our rebellion against God. It can't because we turned away from God and that deserves his punishment. But instead, in God's wisdom, salvation rests solely on what God has done for us in Jesus. Our wisdom says we have to work for it. God's wisdom says that we don't. Because Jesus' death on the cross was 100% effective to forgive all our sin. And more than that, to give us his righteousness. And it's based solely on Jesus. See, our good works don't count for anything in the scheme of salvation because even our good works, even our best works, the works that we're most proud of, that we'd we'd love for people to talk about at our funeral, they've been marred by sin, by evil thoughts and evil motives. And God knows this, and that's why he sent his son. And when God's by his spirit opens our eyes to see this truth and we place our faith in Jesus, we have more wisdom than the wisest philosopher of our age because we're seeing and understanding God's wisdom. And it's freeing. It's freeing because when we have that restored relationship with God through Jesus, we know what's going to happen beyond death. We don't need to fear death. Death is not the end. We have something beyond death that's just going to be so much better than this world. We can affirm what the author of Ecclesiastes says where he says the day of death is better than the day of birth because we know that the day of death means that we're going to be with Jesus in glory. This earth, when we have our faith in Jesus, is not our true home. Our true home is waiting for us in heaven. And God's wisdom is also freeing because it means that we can do works, good works, out of thankfulness to God, without the pressure of thinking that our eternal life depends on this. Imagine for a moment that you're in the army 
You're in the middle of a battle knowing that if you made a mistake, your life could be on the line. There's a lot of pressure. A huge burden on your shoulders knowing that the tiniest slip and that's it. It's gone. Or maybe that's how you live your life. Thinking that your one good work or your one sin is going to either gain you or cost you eternal life. But if our faith is in Jesus, our salvation rests solely on Jesus. We don't have to live with that burden. It's more like we're playing laser tag or paintball. If you're playing laser tag or paintball, if you get hit, well, sure, you might be out of the competition, but you don't die. You don't have to worry about death. And that's the same with us, with Jesus. Our works can be done out of thankfulness. Our eternal life doesn't rest on them because it rests on Jesus and what he has done on the cross. God's wisdom in Jesus also frees us from seeking the wisdom of the world. Hoping that the world's problems, our problems, will be able to be solved. We can stop looking for answers in the news, in the talking heads on TV, or the latest self-help book, or listening to the latest guru. We can give up on Google. We can instead turn to God's wisdom which is revealed to us in Jesus. God gives us the big answers that we need to help us to make sense of this life, to find meaning. And God says, he tells us in James, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault and it will be given to you. God is the one whom we should turn to for wisdom. As we look at God's word and we seek his wisdom, as we look to Christ, it may not answer all those questions that I I started the sermon with. But when we follow God's word and we live it out, it'll help us to make sure that we're going in the right direction. So that when we die, because of what Jesus has done on the cross, we will get to be with him in glory for all eternity. God shows us how to find meaning in this life, in the wisdom of God, which is Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your eternal plan that before even the world was created, you had planned for your son to come uh, to give up his life on the cross for us. Thank you that salvation rests not on what we do, but on what Christ has done. And we ask, Heavenly Father, that you would help us to know that that is your wisdom and to live knowing that that is your wisdom. And if any of us here today are feeling the burden of thinking that our works is what saves us, Lord, that you would today relieve us of that burden so that we would trust in Christ. You would receive the glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.